Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what's the state of testing for COVID-19 in Ireland right now? Test, test, test. That's what we were told to do by the World Health Organization. That's what Minister for Health Simon Harris said we would be doing. And it's what we're all hoping will happen really soon, because if it doesn't, we will stay exactly where we are right now. And I don't know about you, but I'd really like to get back into a studio and out of this blanket over my head kitchen table scenario I have going on for the explainer at the moment. Um, I'm sure everyone knows somebody who has been tested and how long it took for them to get a result from that test for COVID-19. Ireland's testing program has been curtailed by barriers, some of which we have in common with other countries and others that are more unique to Ireland. To see where we stand this week as we head into the last few days of the current stay-at-home order, I'm joined on The Explainer by Killian de Gascon, who you'll know from the nightly Department of Health briefings. He's a medical virologist and the director of the National Virus Reference Laboratory. And as well as that, I'm joined by Stephen McDermott, reporter with the Journal.ie. Stephen has been taking an exhaustive look at what's been happening with testing for the journal over the last week. Um, you published a piece last night, uh, or Wednesday night, I should say, uh, Stevie. Um, so can you let us know as of Wednesday evening what the current state of play for testing in Ireland is? Yeah, and it's funny you say exhaustive because it's like not as straightforward as, as you might think. It's just it's not just a matter of numbers. There's been all these issues that have cropped up over the last number of weeks. Um, so to give kind of listeners a, a bit of context here, the test result numbers are released every Tuesday evening. Um, so they're to midnight on the Monday. So when Killian de Gascon sits there in front of everyone, he's saying, here are the numbers as of midnight last night. So this is from Monday this week. So where we're at now is 153,000-ish. So that's 153,054 tests have been carried out in Ireland. Um, and 41,470 of those were carried out since Tuesday of last week. So between Tuesday and Monday just gone, that's about like a quarter of all the tests that we've carried out. Um, and for context, that's kind of, we're sort of ramping up gradually. There's only 30,000 total uh, tested by the end of March. Um, and the target is to get to a capacity, which is not the same thing as carrying out, but a capacity of 100,000 in the middle of next month. So just so we're clear on testing, when we say testing, we mean if there's a test done, that means that the sample has been taken, it has gone to a lab, it has been looked at by the laboratory and a person has got a result. Yeah, that's exactly it. But like uh, having the result is as important as taking the test because there's no point carrying out a test if you can't get a result quickly enough. The purpose of testing is not just to help the infected person, but it's also to trace the spread of coronavirus within the community. Um, so if you can say, well, you know, uh, a person has had a test and they have tested positive, you can then potentially isolate uh, not just themselves, but the people that are around them that may have it as well. And um, there's an, been an issue with asymptomatic transmission. We've all heard about you now here are the symptoms of coronavirus, but actually, there's increasing research suggesting that there's a lot of people who are walking around who have it who don't know that they have it and that they themselves are spreading it to other people. Um, so by getting people results, you can initiate this contact tracing process again, which kind of allows people who may have the virus but don't actually know that they have it to be isolated and prevent it from spreading even further. It's been a good few weeks since we heard about, you know, the, this message of test, test, test. And when we first heard about that magic number of getting to 100,000 um, tests per week, what have um, what has stopped us from getting there? Yeah, you mentioned previously that like we've had our own issues, you know, within Ireland, but there's also been international issues as well. So on the 16th of March, the WHO came out and said we need to test, test, test. And that was a directive issue to all countries. It wasn't unique to Ireland. 
so obviously the, the, you know, the natural consequence of this is all countries are scrambling for testing equipment. So there's, there's sort of two parts to each test is the swab, which you said, you know, you put in someone's nose or throat to take a sample to see if they have the coronavirus. But there's also a chemical called reagent, which is essentially used to analyze a test to produce a positive or negative result. So as demand for this, you know, uh, these swabs and this reagent surged, uh, essentially all countries across the world, not just Ireland, were left with shortages. So, you know, while we might have wanted to uh, up our testing capacity, essentially we're left in a position where we weren't really able to, you know, just through a, a basic economic situation of supply and demand. Um, but we have had our own unique problems as well. Um, when COVID-19 was first detected in March, the HSE limited testing to close contacts of confirmed cases near those uh, of people who travel from affected areas in northern Italy. So you remember when coronavirus was first spreading around the globe, one of the epicenters was Italy. And it was a time of year where a lot of people were going skiing and coming back. So this is you know one of the ways the virus you know, spread through Europe. Um, but as the virus spread, and it was kind of evidence that we you know it wasn't just people who had traveled to Italy uh, or, or, or say Austria or other affected areas, you know, it was sort of evidence that the virus is transmitting within the community. And the HSE essentially said, right, we have to expand the case definition, which is like, you know, the requirement needed for someone to be put forward for a test. They spread, they essentially expanded to anyone who had had flu-like symptoms, you know. I mean, like if you had, you know, a, a, a runny nose or, or a, a, you know, a bit of a fever or whatever, it's like, grand, that, that's enough to be tested. Like, I know people who uh, had a bit of a cough and went to their GP and the GP put them straight forward for testing, you know. Uh, so, obviously, the natural consequence of that was, like, demands for tests subsequently surged, you know. Patients were flocking to get a test, essentially, at a time when most were still sort of struggling to understand what coronavirus was and how it would infect them and whether they were going to end up in hospital uh, following the following week sort of the system crashed you know uh, the gps reported like not being able to contact the hse there was a website where you could go on to arrange a test that you know that went down because of the, you know the surge was so high just in terms of figures here like you know by the end of the first week forty thousand people were waiting to be tested you know which is insane when you think that in the last week that's basically around the number that we've tested and this is happening at a time we had capacity to carry out just six thousand tests a day so you know almost five or six times the amount of people who we actually could test were seeking a test and so of course the health officials sort of had to look at this and go right we need to change the case definition again i think tony holohan the chief medical officer at the time said you know that we had cast the net too wide and this happened it was kind of a scale back to people who had one of two symptoms but were also in a priority group so say healthcare workers or vulnerable people that but you know, this cut a huge, huge amount of people off that waiting list. Like I said, like 40,000 people were waiting to be tested initially. And all these people were just like, okay, you're you're straight off the list. But a lot of these people were then left kind of confused. You know, uh, they were thinking, right, am I still eligible for a test? Should I still go for a test? Uh, I've been given an appointment. Uh, there was obviously worry among, you know, that subgroup of people who, you know, might be in a vulnerable group thinking, well, like, do I still have to reapply for my test here? And GPs again were like you know inundated from these people who were like looking to reapply to have their test again. So is that backlog all gone now? We have um, tested everybody who needed a test. Essentially, yeah. Tony Holohan said the other night that you know uh, while we carried out around like I said forty one thousand tests the last week that the capacity is actually above demand and um, they've actually changed the case definition again as of Tuesday to include someone who has like it was two symptoms in a in a priority group now it's just one symptom in, a, in a, and in a priority group um so we're currently operating as I said at, at, at a uh, pace that is you know the, the capacity is greater than demand and we'll see again 
with with this change uh, case definition, whether there's sort of a, a a bit of a surge, it's not there's not really expected to be, um, because again the parameters are still quite narrow. Uh, but the issue is that within a few weeks we're going to have to change it again. So we're you know we have much wider testing of the population. Uh, you know if, if if the restrictions are kind of gradually lifted and people are seeing each other more and more, you know again that kind of increases the risk of the virus spreading and and, and leads us to a position where actually we're going to need to allow more people to get tested. So the focus this week remains on people in who have chronic illnesses, people who are in nursing homes or residential settings or healthcare workers. Yeah, that's essentially it. Like there's a huge emphasis on getting people who are within the health service and who are in uh, nursing homes because obviously this huge issue of clusters 60 percent of the deaths so far have been in nursing homes so we're you know trying to try to almost weed out you know where, where the virus is there and, and get a handle on the spread of it within these healthcare settings um but the longer term strategy is for greater widening of the, the, the case definition yeah do we know what those next steps are for the testing regime we we know that the, the Department of Health will have this headline figure of uh, capacity for 100,000 tests by May 18th. Now, this has kind of been a source of some controversy because it was originally supposed to be at the start of May. It's now kind of been pushed back a little bit. There's been some kind of friction, which has been labelled constructive friction by, by those involved, but between the HSC and the uh, Department of Health on you know wh- whether we actually need to test that many people. Um, Leo Radker's come out today and said that while there's a capacity for 100,000 people that they don't actually tend to be testing that much um so the plan is like i say like this this headline 100,000 figure but hopefully all things going well we don't need to test that many people how do we compare with other countries on our testing are we doing well badly somewhere in the middle the short answer is it's kind of hard to say as the long answer is essentially because all countries kind of are performing in their own way if that makes sense so to sort of flesh this out a bit the other week Simon Harris and the National Public Health Emergency Team were throwing out this phrase that we're in the top tier of testing internationally I kind of pressed them on this at one of the National Public Health Emergency Teams and the answer we were eventually given was that we were in the top five in the EU and the top quartile in the world per million population now using measurements like per million or per capita are actually kind of problematic because we I know we had John Byrne Murdoch of the Financial Times on a few weeks ago and he was sort of sort of explaining that like using per capita essentially makes in terms of deaths anyway makes certain countries look worse but in testing it actually makes certain countries look better because you know if if you have a population of say 20,000 people and you do 10,000 tests, 50% tested. If you have a population of a million people and 10,000 tests, it obviously looks a lot worse for the country with the higher population. Um, when you consider a country like, say, Japan, which has a population of 120 million people, they've only carried out 10,000 tests. You know, So Ireland, you could say, is doing a lot better than them. But Japan are, have specific parameters for the types of people that they're testing. So they're only testing people who they know to have COVID-19 or probably have it. So people like, you know, pneumonia or in the very, you know, uh, intense stage of the illness. Then there's another thing with the dates at certain places released their, their testing figures. So uh, as we mentioned earlier, Ireland releases its, its testing figures every Tuesday. Um, Bulgaria, for example, like I think it does it like twice a month. And the UK, uh, on the other hand, kind of does it like once every day. So you're not really, you're getting a snapshot in time. But like if, Ireland, if, if you're comparing what Ireland's figures are, say, on a Friday, which is three or four days after, you know, it's the UK's one is more up to date. So it's not really a fair comparison to say, well, right now at this moment, here's how we're performing. 
I'm going to talk to Killian in a second about the test, uh, the current test for COVID-19. Um, but something we've been hearing a lot about is the antibody test. And just want to get into that for a second uh, with you, Stevie. Um, can you explain first what an antibody is? Yeah, so essentially an antibody is something that your body produces to fight off an illness when you get sick. Um, sometimes they stay in your body your whole life and help you resist a particular virus. So like this is something that happens with the chickenpox. If you think of like the chickenpox is something you get when you're a young child. And then later in life when the virus that produces chickenpox comes back at you, the antibody is there to help fight it. But sometimes they don't stay in your body for your whole life. So think of like seasonal influenza. And what happens here is uh, certain antibodies that fight the flu kind of wear off and then you have to build them up again. Um, this is also kind of relevant because there's different types of flu, which means the antibodies you produce for the type of flu virus in one year won't actually prevent you from getting the different sort of flu virus that goes around next year, which is why you need to get a flu shot every 12 months. So is there a problem in testing for these with COVID-19? Essentially, you don't really develop these instantly. Like it can take anywhere from a week to a month to, to sort of build up these antibodies in, in your body. So you could have COVID-19, but not the antibodies to test positive in one of these antibody tests. And also some like of the tests available might not be sensitive enough to detect these antibodies. So like it might appear that like you're negative for antibodies, but actually you're positive either because of like the sort of low levels or because like the tests that are available just can't pick them up. Um, it's also like important to point out that we actually don't know how long the immunity that these antibodies might give you. Like again, I go back to that um, the cold analogy. You know, you could have antibodies in your body that if they even if they do work, they might not fight it off for uh, uh, the period of your lifetime. And are there any benefits? Because we have been hearing a huge amount about antibody testing. What are the benefits of it? Yeah, like I mean, like in an ideal world, if, if the antibodies were kind of more effective and more foolproof, we could use them to test who is immune to COVID-19. But World Health Organization has warned that like it's not really the best approach right now. Um, and what's more useful is like if we can see how many people have been infected, how many people might have some level of immunity. So uh, what we could see kind of is like uh, that many more people actually have antibodies in the number of confirmed cases. You know, we talked before about these asymptomatic cases, like you know, essentially we could have like more and more of it in the community without actually knowing it, which would mean like a lot more people have actually experienced this milder illness uh, and that, that would kind of give them immunity. There was this you know, controversial idea floating around in the UK uh, uh, when this all kicked off of herd immunity. Like the idea is is essentially that, that we've actually developed an immunity without having to re uh, rely on the development of a vaccine to get over the crisis. So what we'd be doing is moving from testing people from COVID-19 like we are now to maybe testing a sample of the population to see how much of our population does have immunity to COVID-19. Um, I think that's probably a good point to bring in Killian Degascoon, who is a medical virologist and, as I mentioned, is the director of the National Virus Reference Laboratory. Killian, I wanted to just bring it back to basics with you. Could you explain exactly what a test for COVID-19 looks like? In essence, the test that we're using is a, a molecular test. So we're looking for pieces of the, the genetic material of the virus. So what happens when people go and get a, a maybe go to the sampling center, they will have a swab uh, put into their throat and into the back of their nose. That sample will come to the laboratory. And there are really three stages to the testing process. The first stage is to inactivate the virus, so to, to kill it if it's present. The second stage then is to extract or to take out the viral RNA from the sample. And then the third step is to detect and amplify the viral RNA if it's present. So they're really the three steps. So we finish up with the, we're using the polymerase chain reaction. And what that is, it's a, an assay that's very sensitive and capable of detecting and amplifying 
very small amounts of genetic material. So PCR can be used for anything, but it's very commonly used um, in medicine and in molecular diagnostics for the likes of influenza, HIV, hepatitis C, all of those areas. One of the problems we've seen with kind of being able to ramp up testing is that there was a shortage of the supplies that were needed, but it wasn't just one thing. There seemed to be a lot of different steps in the in the testing and there were shortages hitting a lot of them. Can you explain kind of the the process that test goes through and where those barriers came up? Yeah, you're absolutely right. We had a, a quite a, an unfortunate run in Ireland, but to be fair, it was seen across the world. Um, and I suppose that's what happens in a pandemic when, when everybody is pulling on the same supplies. So initially we saw a, a shortage in the supply of swabs. So that meant that the number of people going to the sampling centres had to be reduced. Uh, at the National Virus Reference Laboratory, we evaluated and, and validated a number of different types of swabs over that period uh, to try and get us through the the period of time when uh, swabs were at a premium around the world. Uh, so that work was was done and enabled us to continue testing. After that, unfortunately, then the laboratories were hit. So we initially had a problem with the, with lysis buffer. So lysis buffer is involved in the first step of the process. And what that does is that it inactivates and, and breaks open the virus in essence and makes it safe for us to use or to test for in the laboratory and safe for us to work with. After the lysis buffer issue was resolved, then we had problems with extraction kits. And that's what people have termed reagent a, a lot in the media. And in essence, what the extraction kit is, is a chemical compound that allows us to extract the RNA or to take out the viral RNA in the second, second step of the process. And the reason we were hit quite badly with that in Ireland was because a lot of the laboratories um, in the hospitals and including ourselves at the NVRL were using a similar platform from the same manufacturer. And in essence, that manufacturer told us that they had seen an increased global demand of about a thousand percent or more. Um, and in essence, they had to reduce the amount of supplies that they could provide to any one country. So they were in a position of trying to keep all of their customers happy. But the only way they could do that by providing any supply was to reduce the supply to everybody. So with the NVRL, we ended up down to about a capacity of 30% or 40% where we would normally be when in actual fact we wanted to be ramping up. But that that again, what that issue has now been addressed in Ireland, and I have to acknowledge that the huge work that um, HSE procurement has done um, in obtaining additional supplies from existing manufacturers, but also sourcing new platforms that will ensure, that will provide redundancy to our system and contingency and make sure that in the coming weeks and months, we're not all pulling on the same platforms of the same manufacturers or the same global supply chain. So we've brought in new platforms from the States, we've brought in new platforms from China, um, and we've brought in new platforms from our existing manufacturers. So now there's a, a greater diversity, if you like, in the platforms that the hospitals and ourselves um, and our colleagues at, at Enfer are using. Were we able to go to the kind of big pharma presence that we have in Ireland? I think that was something that people wondered, you know, there's a lot of you know, small towns across the country with big pharmaceutical manufacturing plants uh, close by. Were any of them able to help with the shortages of any of these materials? Yeah, so the lysis buffer is something that can be manufactured. That's the first step of the process that inactivates the virus. Um, so that can be manufactured really um, in-house by a, a number of companies. So certainly we had 
uh, offers of assistance from pharmaceutical companies and from academic institutions who are able to provide assistance with that. That was very helpful. Um, from at the extraction stage, stage two, unfortunately, that's slightly more challenging because although the technology in itself is is reproducible, a lot of the equipment would need to be matched with a, say, proprietary solution or chemical solution that you would use on the platform. So it's not it's not as easy to use, say, a homebrew um, or a DIY manufactured chemical in that step. So that was something that was not quite, as I said, we certainly had lots of offers of assistance for which we're very grateful, um, but it's not quite as easy in that situation purely because the assay platform needs to recognize the solution that it's receiving so an awful lot of from a quality control perspective all of these uh, this equipment and the chemicals that we're using need to be matched and they're batch controlled they are they have an expiry date they need to be um they need to perform within a certain range so all of those things are are recorded um on the assay platform so therefore it's not quite as straightforward as just taking some a product off the shelf and putting it onto a, a piece of equipment that uh, is manufactured by a particular company the numbers of of tests uh, that we have coming back a day i think that the number that has been put out is that we hope to get 15,000 a day or 100,000 a week that's not quite happening yet what are our current roadblocks um, to get to that number? So at the moment, we're in the region of just under uh, 9,000 um, samples a day. Uh, that's our capacity. Uh, we are not, we're not fully at capacity yet from a, a sampling perspective because we're using the spare capacity to test nursing home and residential care facilities, uh, staff and healthcare workers. So that work has been ongoing for the last seven to 10 days. Um, we, at the moment, in the context of scaling up to, say, the 15,000, uh, 16,000 tests per day mark, we are bringing new equipment online. So there's been a, an unexpected delay, I suppose, in just getting equipment on the island. So at the NVRL, we have new equipment coming on stream in the second half of this week. Um, at Enfer in uh, NACE, we have new equipment coming on stream probably at the weekend and the first half of next week. So all of these are, are things that when we initially made the plan and ordered the equipment, I suppose we envisage it being on island and up and running a little bit sooner. Not massively sooner, we're probably in the region of, I suppose, one to two weeks, which would have made a difference. Um, we've also secured additional capacity um, overseas. When, in Germany, people will be familiar with the, the, the assistance that they have provided to date. Um, and again, that's coming on stream probably the second half of this week and early next week. So the, there was always going to be a, a lead-in period for this work, purely because the capacity did not exist on the island when we started. Um, we only had our first positive result um, on February 29th, um, and we really only started testing uh, for this in February 7th. So I think a huge amount of work has been done. I appreciate that people want to get to 100,000 and people feel that we, we should be moving more quickly, but really we're moving as quickly as we can in, in a very competitive um, international procurement uh, field at, at this stage. But as I said, we will get to where we need to be, but it's just taken a, a probably two to three weeks longer than, than we hoped it would when we started the process. Yeah, I think a few weeks ago we talked about restrictions and saying life won't go back to normal until we have a vaccine. But now, like that's so long off, people are saying we, we won't get back to normal until there's testing and contact tracing done in almost real time. Um, why is that? Why would that be helpful to get us back to, you know, whatever our new normal will look like? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it's important to maybe tease out the, the two separate issues. So in the context, firstly, of, of lifting restrictions, um, we're really looking at the number of cases in the community, the number of people being hospitalized, the number of admissions to intensive care, and the number of deaths, and the um, the Ornolf that people have talked about. So there's a number of figures there that we can monitor. And, and really in the context of, say, looking back to when we implemented the, the current restrictions, uh, it was around the 28th of March, the numbers that we had in hospital and the numbers that we had in intensive care were lower then than they are now. So that's really where we are from the point of view of looking at the restrictions. The second part of that, when we do get to a situation where we can lift restrictions or ease restrictions, certainly there does need to be a testing capacity and a contact tracing capacity in there to really go out into the community and find as many cases as possible. And we're learning more about the virus now that really indicates that uh, asymptomatic transmission may contribute significantly to driving this pandemic. And that was something that we didn't appreciate at the very start. If we look back at the experience in China, they reckoned or they calculated after the the WHO report from the the Chinese outbreak, they reckoned that asymptomatic infection probably accounted for only about one to two percent of cases and probably wasn't a significant driver of the pandemic at that point, or at least their outbreak. Um, So whether the virus has evolved and adapted or whether we're just seeing a slightly different pattern of disease um, in this part of the world, we now believe that asymptomatic transmission contributes significantly. So what that means from a testing perspective is where we have traditionally tested people based on the presence of symptoms, we now need to develop um, a service whereby we still will test people who have symptoms, but then what we will do is probably look at their contacts even if they're asymptomatic, and test them as well and try to spread out that way and identify clusters of transmission, ideally before people become symptomatic or equally just if they don't, if they never become symptomatic, we still want to be able to capture those individuals from a, a testing perspective so that we can isolate them because we believe now that they're capable of transmitting infection. So even if they don't have symptoms, they really need to be isolating and staying at home for 14 days so we can protect the rest of the population. Do we know how the virus is behaving in the community right now? Because the testing definition we've been testing, you know, a very specific group of people, you know, prioritizing healthcare workers, prioritizing those in residential settings. So are we a little bit in in the unknown about how it's actually behaving in the rest of the community? Yeah, I think we have a, an incomplete picture. I think that's a very good point. I think there, there's, there are some hard figures that we have, and they're the ones that I mentioned in relation to the number of hospitalizations, the number of people in intensive care, and the number of deaths. Obviously, they're, they're hard data that we can look at, and testing in the community isn't going to have any impact on those figures. So that's the important thing, I think, to highlight. However, you're absolutely right. From the point of view of what's happening in, say, the 80% of people who we believe have a fairly mild illness, um, with this infection and don't require hospitalization and don't develop severe illness, we do need to get a f- better picture on what's happening in the community for with that population. And that's one of the reasons, in essence, that we need to continue to increase our capacity for testing. And as I said, so we're over, we're still over 60,000 a week now, which is kind of un- unprecedented for something like this in Ireland. And as I said, we want to get to over 100,000 a week and we'll get there probably um the, the third week in May. As I said, we were hoping that would be sooner, but realistically, it was never going to be a huge amount sooner, just given the amount of logistics work that needed to go into it. But as I said, we 
tested over uh, 41,000 cases last week. Uh, our current capacity is just over 60,000. And by next week, that will be up over 70,000 and it will scale up from there. So what we want to be doing is testing as many people as possible. You're right, the, the case definition was um, was narrowed in essence to be more targeted and to focus on trying to identify as many cases as, as possible who were symptomatic. But what we want to do now, as I said, is, is broaden that out so we can capture not only the symptomatic cohort, but also those who are asymptomatic. And we would plan to do that after we've completed the testing in the nursing homes, which I would envisage will um, probably take us another five to seven days or thereabouts. Killian, would you just give us a quick um, definition of what we mean when we say clinical case definition? Yeah, of course. So the, the clinical case definition is intended as a, as a way of identifying those individuals to whom we should provide a test or, or who we should be testing. Um, you'll remember, or people will remember back at the very start that there was that included in the case definition, there were a number of symptoms. So fever, cough, shortness of breath. And in addition, there was the travel component. So we were testing people who were returning from China or who were returning from Singapore or South Korea or some of the other affected areas. Um, a few weeks back, I don't have the exact date, but we removed the travel uh, requirement when we saw that the virus was circulating in the community. Um, but we retained the, the fever, cough and shortness of breath. And people had to have a couple of those symptoms. What we're doing now is broadening that out because what we've seen in recent weeks is that the majority of our um, cases here actually haven't had a fever. So again, it suggests that the disease we're seeing here is slightly different to what was seen in the early stages in China. So now the case definition means if people have any of those symptoms, so either a fever or a cough or shortness of breath, they only need to have one of those. And then in the current week, what we're doing is prioritizing individuals in particularly vulnerable groups. So those, those who either have a, a chronic medical condition or those who are um, household contacts of those individuals. In addition, we're focusing on healthcare workers. We've been doing that for the last number of weeks. Um, and as you said, we're focusing on um, nursing homes and residential care facilities uh, this week to try and cover all of those given recent problems. And we will broaden it out once we've completed the, the sweep through the nursing homes what we would envisage is broadening the case definition further so that you won't necessarily need to be in one of the prioritized groups and um, basically anybody in the in the community who, who rings their GP with uh, symptoms that are suggestive of, of um, COVID-19 uh, will be able to access a test. Will the sweeps of nursing homes need to continue? So even if you've done one sweep, will you need to then go back in a few weeks and do another sweep? Will that focus need to continue through the rest of the year, do you ma imagine? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And I, I'm not aware that a, a formal policy decision has been made on that yet. Um, I think it's something that will certainly be kept under review. Uh, certainly the, the nursing homes that have been affected have faces, faced real challenges. And it's possible that testing in that setting may not be the priority for them. It may be around staffing. It may be around personal protective equipment and, and those type of issues. However, in the setting of nursing homes that have not been affected by by COVID nineteen, there is certainly a, a good argument to be made for having a, a more regular um, screening process in those centres to ensure that we can protect them and, and prevent the virus uh, entering into the nursing homes. So whether that 
comes down to say sort of screening of healthcare workers uh, on arrival at the facility or whether it's a more formal um, testing strategy on a on a weekly or a fortnightly basis as I said I'm not aware that a formal decision has been made in that area yet. One of the other things that people have noted over the over the last two months is the length of time it's taken to get a test result um, what are the what's the turnaround time right now for a test result and what is the ideal turnaround time if we are kind of living back our uh, almost normal lives yeah so the ideal i suppose test turnaround time is is as, as short as possible but i suppose it's an s if we look at the number the couple of steps involved so the way the process works at the moment and we would envisage working um for the coming weeks at least is that you have if you have symptoms or if you're concerned you call your gp and uh, the gp uh, makes an electronic referral uh, to the sampling center where you then get called to have the sample taken or the swab taken that swab then comes to the laboratory for testing and, and after it's tested the result goes to the contact tracing center which feeds back to the patient so there are four or five steps there and trying to get those into say three or four days um at the moment is is quite a challenge but that's really where um we need to be but what the hse is looking at is in addition to the current system, they're looking at potential um, IT solutions that may allow for the automation of some of those steps that will make them more efficient. So that, for example, from a laboratory perspective, once the sample comes in, generally speaking, the testing itself for a small number of samples really only takes six to eight hours. But obviously with capacity and with as numbers scale up, then there's a generally speaking from a laboratory perspective the majority of individuals the, or the majority of results would be generated probably within 24 to 36 hours so what we really want to try and do is make the process in advance of that and after that as streamlined as possible so that things go very things happen very quickly so from the point of view of the contact tracing in real time it's say for example if if you develop symptoms today which is Wednesday we'd obviously like you to be referred today perhaps sampled tomorrow tested in the lab on Friday and have a result by Friday and that the contact tracing would start on Saturday that's probably the the system we're trying to get to now ideally that that additional one or two days shouldn't make a massive difference because once your symptoms start today you should be self-isolating and that would be the recommendation and it's important for people to realize that the test doesn't give them any sort of protection or any um, passport to roam. Once the symptoms start, people should be self-isolating um, for 14 days. That's really the, the current guidance. So if you take, say, you need to wait until, say, Friday or Saturday for a result from today, what that would facilitate then is that we can start identifying your contacts. Um, and really, we want to identify your contacts before they've had an opportunity to transmit the infection further. So, for example, when we when we identify you with symptoms, if you're going to infect people, you will already have infected them. So what we want to try and do is stop the next chain of transmission. And that's the purpose for testing and contact tracing. So we test you, we confirm your infection, you're isolated. And what we want to do is get to your contacts before they've had an opportunity to develop symptoms and transmit the virus onwards. So is that what they say this test is, uh, the result is more important, say, for, for you and the people working on your team than it is for me, the person who has been tested? Yeah, exactly. Now, obviously, I appreciate that at an individual level that everybody likes to know their results and likes to know their status. So it's still important. We still want to get the results back to the individual. But you're right, for those people who don't need to go to hospital who don't develop severe illness 
there is a, a public health or a population health benefit to the results that that is really important in as we because it helps to track the infection in the community and i think it's also important to highlight that with the delays in testing and with the prioritization in in recent weeks people in hospital have always been tested so the group that is i suppose that has not been uh, tested is really that group or that cohort of individuals in the community who have milder infection if people get sick and need to go to hospital, they've been tested all along. I think it's just important to, to highlight that, that we're not um, denying testing for, for people who are sick and for people for whom it does inform their, their clinical pathway and inform their medical care. It's really the, the people in the community who are relatively well, but at the same time are capable of transmitting the infection to others. Is the turnaround time for testing if you've been tested in hospital quicker than it is if you're being tested through the GP track? Yes, absolutely. And that was something that, so again, the hospitals were were caught up like ourselves in the uh, procurement exercise and the uh, supply chain issues that we talked about earlier. But now, oh, I think that all of the hospitals are, are up and testing and, and have capacity. So yes, what we're expecting them to do is to prioritize their, their own inpatients and the healthcare workers. So absolutely, the test uh, turnaround time for people in hospital really is, is less than a day in the majority of places. On an individual level, I think the other question that people had around getting a test result back was um, if you show a symptom and you start self-isolating, if you get your test result back quicker, does that mean that you can stop self-isolating if it's a negative? In essence, if you're still symptomatic, then the answer is no. So what we want people to do is if they have, if they if they're symptomatic and they have a test, and if their test result shows that they are infected with the virus, then they're self-isolating for 14 days. Um, but if somebody has symptoms and their test does not identify um, the presence of virus, then really what we're saying to those individuals is that they can return to normal um, probably after they've been symptom free for 48 hours. So there still has to be a period uh, uh, of symptom resolution before we would consider them to be uh, low risk again. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they can just go about their normal lives because really what we want to do, and this may be a new normal for us, um, in Ireland after this pandemic is that people tend to be very uh, stoic about symptoms, uh, respiratory symptoms, so coughs and, and colds and, and flus, and they tend to go to work and they tend to go to school. And really that's not ideal behaviour at all. So I think that there may be a new normal in this situation where people will realise that if they if they have any infection, obviously SARS-CoV-2 is, is a more serious infection in many respects, but really if we have any infection, we shouldn't be going out into the community or into our workplaces to, to transmit that. Yeah, that's one of the things I found that people were saying, if you get a negative test, um, you can get back to normal more quickly. You don't have to self-isolate for the four, full 14 days. But really, we should all be staying in because the last thing the public needs right now is more colds and flus and respiratory illnesses out there at the moment, I guess. Um, so thank you, Killian, And thank you, Stevie, for coming in and explaining um, the state of testing in Ireland at the moment to us. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Stevie and Gillian for their time and work. If you read the journal, you may have seen our appeal in the past few weeks for you to support our journalism. It's obviously a difficult time for media as advertising revenues fall drastically, but we are and want to keep providing you and the rest of our 830,000 daily users with valuable, accessible journalism. If you feel it's important for society to have that open access to news and good information, just like this podcast, please head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. 
If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them as well. Thank you and catch you next time. Thank you.